Hi, I'm Shane Patek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the marketing playbook for the industry one decision at a time. Daily Harvest is part of a growing coterie of food startups trying to redefine what it means to eat on the go. The company, which counts some major names, including Gwyneth Paltrow and Serena Williams as its backers, runs on a subscription model that delivers healthy frozen food directly to you. Rachel Drury, Daily Harvest founder, joins me on today's show to discuss growing the company beyond her kitchen, how she's marketed beyond Instagram and staying away from overwhelming investor pressure. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to Making Marketing. Hi, thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. Um, I'm hugely fascinated with and obsessed with Daily Harvest. So, But I've actually never found out, and I think a lot of people who are listening to the show haven't actually found out sort of where it came from, why it started. Um, so take us all the way back to the beginning and talk us through origin story. Yeah, so I started Daily Harvest because I like to think I was hangry. Um, I was working uh, at a at a company at, at the time that was a very fast-paced startup and um, realized that day after day after day, it had been three o'clock and I hadn't eaten lunch. And, you know, my my like cognitive abilities started to decline. <laughs> I started to make bad decisions and I was like, I'm starving. And I would go grab something like trail mix or I'd get like stale birthday cake that had been sitting out since noon. Um, there's always, have you noticed that there's always stale birthday always cake? Always stale birthday cake. And then this, this is what you eat in those hangry moments when you're, you know, working hard or doing anything that keeps you super busy. Um, and I, I realized that I knew so much about health and wellness and I just I wasn't using that to to my benefit. I didn't have time to nourish myself. So I, I had to find a way to solve the problem. And that's where it started. So let's walk a little bit through kind of how you thought about, you know, turning this into a business, because yeah. you've just told me sort of why. And 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 what I love it, it was obviously clearly personal. <laughs> and you're like, OK, I need For sure. my own my own hunger. Um where and then how did it go from there to becoming essentially a company? How did you yeah. how do you take an idea and then turn it into a business? Yeah, so um so I I've always wanted to, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and this felt like the right opportunity. There was a real need that I had realized that I had um but what I wanted to figure out was how many other people had this need before I decided like all right, you know, we're going to dive in head first and and do this. Um so I got myself a commercial kitchen in Long Island City, um, started buying like Trader Joe's produce. <laughs> um, and I said to myself, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want to be disciplined. I don't want to just like fool myself. So what would it look like to say that this is a success? Let's jump in head first. Um, so what I did is I set a metric that was once five times more people that I didn't know were purchasing than those who I did. Okay. Um, it was time. Like I wanted to make sure that this wasn't my friends and like my mom's friends feeling sad for me being like, <laughs> she's trying, let's make like, let's buy it. Um, so I figured like, you know, that would show that I've gotten degrees removed from friends and family and prove that that it's a real business and that I really was solving a problem. Where were you on sort of the product end? Because you had this commercial kitchen. You're sort yeah, of trying to I test. Did, and did you? I was everything. There okay. was it was my right hand employee. Number one, my <laughs> left hand employee. Number two, I was coming up with the recipes, making the food. Um, I built the website. I delivered everything by hand. Um, I mean, literally everything. 
I hired my nephews at some point. Um, And I was like, "Uh, I'm too pregnant. Can you jump out of the car and like deliver this for me? Thanks. Were there were there things that you tried? Because I I mean, I remember sort of I think I first heard about Daily Harvest after you'd already significantly expanded into different types of products. But um, why start with kind of, you know, what was kind of your thinking about this is going to be my hero product? Yeah. And and then how did you work towards getting to that little metric that you talked about? Yeah. So the. That happened really quickly. So getting to that metric happened in like, I can't, I can't remember, it was somewhere between six and eight weeks. It was actually insane. And I was like, whoa, okay, got something here. Um, but for me, starting with smoothies was really important because one, it was, it was a concept that didn't seem so foreign. If I had started with soup, let's say, or lattes, people wouldn't have understood what it was. They would have been like, wait, you put stuff in a cup. Is it like cup of noodle? When it's like, the antithesis of cup of noodles. So, um, you know, smoothies, I felt like people would understand. And there's this moment when you open a cup of Daily Harvest where you see all the whole full ingredients. Um, And I felt like that also was really powerful for a smoothie because, like, you blend them. But to have that proof point to be like, wait, there's nothing in here but – like mango and lychee nuts and things that like I I know what they are. Um, (laughs) Things that I know what they are – I, I felt like smoothies was the right thing. Smoothies are also great because people have like real habits around them. Mm-hmm. Like like it's something that people uh, somebody can have every day for breakfast and people who are passionate about smoothies, um, like they want them every day. So that's where I started because I felt like it was the, the right place to do so. Um, but the vision was always so much bigger than that. Right. Um, you know, the thing that, that I like to... The way that I like to articulate what we're doing is basically taking the freezer that already exists in every single kitchen in the United States of America uh, that usually is filled with things like, I don't know, ice cubes and vodka, um, sometimes breast milk. How do you know? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Because I've been in your freezer. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, Go back for a minute because you said something really interesting. So, you know, it was just you. You had you'd set this metric. Eight weeks is pretty. It's pretty quick. It was crazy. But you didn't. When did you start sort of spending money? When were you like, okay, this is now a business Mm -hmm. and now it's going to start. It's kind of like that moment. And I think everyone's moment comes at different times. And we've had a lot of founders on the show who've all talked about like that moment that they realized, actually, this is going to be a business. Yep. Um, For some, it was very deliberate. For you, it was like, okay, I'm going to try this. People seem to like it. And now Mm -hmm. it's a business. When did you spend money on advertising? When did you start saying, I might hire somebody? Yeah. So I bootstrapped the business for the first year. Um, and it was really important to me because, you know, re- I'd never raised money before. I It was a little um, intimidating. And I was like, I'm not really sure I want this. Like, do I want investors? When I was um, at my previous job, I had felt like, you know, the relationship with the investors was confusing. And I was like, I'm not really sure what I want. So bootstrapping in the beginning was really important to me. And and because of that, I was really um, capital efficient. Let's cheap. say cheap, frugal, any of those words will work. Um, and that's why for such a long time, it was literally just me. And, um, you know, when I hired our first employee, it was also just me. But, you know, it was to the point where I just couldn't be everywhere at once. And I needed somebody else to, to, um, you know, kind of hold the fort down in certain areas of the business so I could focus on others. Um, and when I really decided that I needed to raise and I needed to to go forward was when I realized that I was like my own worst enemy, um, that my frugality and like my desire to um, 
to like bootstrap was getting in the way of growth. Like people sure. wanted it and I couldn't keep up with demand. And yeah. it was like, what am I doing? Yeah. Did you, were you spending money on advertising and when did no, you sort of first do it? took us a while to do yeah. that. Walk me through really that. Time. Yeah. Um, so in the beginning, it was totally word of mouth. And that's why the metric that I had kind of set for myself was that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to prove that there was going to be a word of mouth um, evangelism on the business. And it was totally there. So, you know, people really were um, just talking about it because they were excited about it because they were excited about the access they had to like real nourishing food that actually fit into people's lifestyles. Uh, they were excited about the ingredients and the superfoods. And, and like it was just something that people wanted to talk about. And Instagram for us was um, was the platform to do it on because you eat with your eyes first and Instagram is like filled with beautiful jewel-worthy pictures of food and you know intellectually we know that that the food blogger who's on there um spent like hours preparing something and then taking pictures and then photoshopping it but still emotionally we're like i feel bad about myself like i feel bad about do you think your business would have been where it was sort of even like year one ish yeah without instagram So I think there would have been another platform. Like, I don't think it's an Instagram thing, Mm -hmm. but I think it is uh, having like a visual connection to something that people are really passionate about. People, I mean, I'm such a foodie. I love food and there are millions of people like me. Um, And, you know, Instagram is where foodies go for food inspiration. So, you know, that's that's why it worked. But if that that was another platform, I think it would have been fine. But it's funny that you say that. It's, you know, we've talked so much on the show with, you know, people who are making comforters and they're like, Instagram. Instagram is so great because people think about Oh, like just that beautiful bedroom where they can have those perfect white yeah. sheets. And you know how you sometimes see those pictures? Like, it's I escapism. Want, that's, that's my it's bedroom. It's like watching Harry Potter. So it's not just it's food. Escapism. Right? So it's not just food. No. It's not just bedding and comforters because right. we're seeing that. It's not just eyeglasses. It's not right. just. And this. it feels like this entire kind of group of businesses, and I'm lumping them together not because they have any similarities, except they happen to exist at around a similar period totally. of time. I mean, they're born on Instagram they're they or they find themselves on Instagram which is why I sometimes ask okay without Instagram would we be where we are right now in some ways yeah I mean if if, for me if you think about where you used to talk about food before Instagram it was at the dinner table at a dinner party with your close friends so what Instagram has done has amplified that and magnified it Mm -hmm. so that instead of just talking to a small circle your circle is bigger um, and it, like you have a scaled circle now, yeah. uh, you know, and it, but it's still that same idea. It's that it's that dinner table conversation. It is that um, like, oh, my gosh, to your co to your coworker. Like, do you know where I ate last night? It was insane. Yeah. Here's a picture. Here's a picture. Um, OK, so you you're you're going word of mouth. You have a bunch of people more than just your friends and your mom who are clearly <laughs> liking this, yes. which is a good sign. Um, what was kind of I guess what was kind of step two? How do you now take this into being, again, a business business? And what kind of goals did you set yourself? Were you setting yourself goals of users or customers? Were you setting yourself something else? Yeah. So um, I'm not sure this is the right way to do it, but this is how I did it. Uh, So after I had kind of raised that initial round of funding, I was like, all right, so what am I building towards? Ultimately, I will have to raise another round of funding. This is kind of how this works. I do plan to build a profitable business. It's something that's very that was very important to me at the time. Uh, it is still very important to me. Um, but you know, I um, 
when it came to like the discipline and and like how I thought about it and how I could be very uh, like results driven, I thought about that Series A and and what that would look like. Um, and I spoke to a ton of his Series A investors and I said, "Tell me what your ideal Series A company looks like." Before, I mean, this was like before I was hawking anywhere. This was just like you know, literally tell me what 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 my business would look like and in its ideal state where you would have no choice but to put your money where your mouth was. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were very free-flowing with that information. And I also got to build relationships, which was really cool. And then I didn't build for that, but I had those um, like key metrics in the back of my mind. Like, this is what success means. Um, and then I had a ton sure. of other metrics for success, which was like, you know, on the marketing side and blah, 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 blah. But um, that's... I've always been very metrics driven and and making sure that like I'm building towards like what I want something to look like a year from now, two years from now. I'm uh, fascinated by that actually. And that seems to me, it sounds like a pretty, pretty cool way and pretty smart way to do it. But investors are so interesting too. I mean, VCs are, I mean, just in general kind of, I've always thought about sort of, okay, a VC's goal and how a VC looks at kind of their goals and then how their portfolio companies then fit into They're not goals. always right. And they're not always right. No. Um, Just but inputs. This, but at the same time, you're getting some pretty good and interesting inputs. Totally. And they see a lot. So that's that's what you really get from those conversations. What were you hearing from in terms of like the seeing a lot perspective, the, the competitive market? Okay, nobody's really doing what exactly you're doing, but there's right. a lot of adjacent things. You're competing with people for right. not just necessarily their kind of budget for that specific product, but so many other things. Totally. And and the conversation I had a lot is, um, who are your competitors? And I said, well, depends on what business you think we're in. We're not, like, people would, would kind of pigeonhole us to frozen food. And I was like, hey, we're not competi- competing with frozen peas. Sorry, we're not. You're not competing with Hungry Man. We're not competing with Hungry Man. Like, Nobody seriously. can compete with Nobody Hungry Man. Nobody can compete with Hungry Man. Totally true. Um, but what we are competing with is, yeah, we're taking we're taking share from meal kit. We're taking share from fast casual. We're taking care, uh, you know, we're taking share from quick service. We're taking share from ambient. We're taking share from coffee shops. It's all over the place, but we're not looking at it that way. What we are looking to do is to turn you know freezers across America into like a pantry. If you think about it as a pantry, it's like the food that you always need there when you want it, um, of good, clean food that you never had the time to eat before. Was that helpful to an investor? You describing it as, well, we're everything. It was helpful for investors that got it. It was not helpful for investors that they were like, whoa, 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 that's like a lot. And mm-hmm. I'm like, look, none of these like places that I that I'm saying that we're taking share from are solving my need. So I am looking to solve this need, this insight that I had um by using the freezer and and like the the categories that that can be in are endless. Did they ask then because I assume question number 2 is okay, who's this for? Totally. And I'm I'm sure it's for everybody. But you've got to start with like this is going to be the the main place I'm going to think about. This is the type of person that I'm going to think about. Totally. Um, what was your answer there, and how did that kind of fit into this company and also this company's image and brand identity that you were still kind of building and figuring out? Absolutely. So yes, Daily Harvest is for everybody, and we've proven that over and over again. But in the beginning, you got to you got to start somewhere. So where we started was really thinking about um, who are the people who make the purchasing decisions, especially in the food space, it's women. 
women make 80% and all of consumer women make 80% of the purchasing decisions. So, okay, let's target women. Then you like go one rung down. Who who can we reach, right? Like for us to say we're going to go after um somebody who's like maybe not super internet savvy or somebody who um, That's going to cost you more. It's going to cost us You're going to have to buy a TV ad. Totally. So how do we reach people in a really um, capital-efficient way that's super scalable? We know it's women. The younger women, are, like, younger women are easier to get to because of Instagram, because of social media. So let's start there. And that's exactly what we did. How much of acceptance and how did it play into that? Because you just said this earlier. Um, yeah, it depends what category you think we're competing in. Mm-hmm. You're sort of everywhere, but also... You're going to have to make people feel more comfortable with what you're selling to them than they have been. It doesn't really exist. And frankly, when people think of frozen food, it doesn't exactly conjure up right. the healthiest image. And Dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets and com- frozen pizza. Exactly. And Hungry Man. And sometimes it comes with a brownie. Um, but <sighs> you've, got this, you've got this entirely, essentially a new product that's not really existed. Yep. It existed somewhere because you have this vague idea that, oh, this could work yeah. if you're a consumer, but you've never heard of it before. Totally. Um, who's going to be most accepting and how are you going to reach that? Yeah. reach that idea. I mean, look, the the target group that I just discussed, those are the people who are most accepting too. Like, you know, these are people who identified with the problem. I, I was the target market. You know, these are people who identified with that same problem and, and here's a solution. So mm-hmm. if you speak that language and you speak as far in a way that's like, you know, speaking to a need and not necessarily like a category or a collection, um, also, frozen food hasn't had – there's been no innovation in frozen food since 1950. Like, innovation kind of stopped at the TV dinner, and the reason why is because the freezer aisle is broken, and I can talk about that. But um, more importantly, when you think about, like, educating people and, and helping them understand that this is not the frozen pizza, this is not, um, you know, dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets, this is something totally different, that's where the visuals come in. Um, and our visuals were, you know, still are – really beautiful and impactful and elevated and you know they show the real food it's not about the packaging it's like you know there's nothing hidden it's like we're going to show you a mango and then when you open the cup there's a mango so there's a lot of trust building through that um and a lot of like deprogramming from mm-hmm. assuming frozen is bad for you and then you know if you go on our website if you go um if you sign up for daily harvest if you you know if you are on our our email list we share all sorts of scientifically proven facts that show that you know, the frozen food that you're eating is actually better than the stuff that you buy in the grocery store. It's just people don't know it. Um, in Europe, frozen is huge. But in the U.S., because there's there's been a total lack of an in, in innovation, um, it's... The connotations are very the different. The connotations, yeah. So, and obviously marketing is now playing a huge part in this D, de- I like that word, that word, deprogramming. Um, so you're doing it with visuals. Mm-hmm. You mentioned kind of, if you go to our website... How much and at what point in sort of your growth did sort of content start playing a part? How much did kind of online, offline start playing a part? And how did you kind of think of, you know, those as marketing expenditures and how did you track that they were working? Yeah. So um, not until very, very recently um, is the truth. I feel like there's still so much more to do on the digital side mm-hmm. that I didn't want to um, I didn't want to get distracted by like the shiny the shiny shiny object over there um you know IRL is great but for me I wanted to make sure that 
um, we had a rigorous experiment set up and that it was going to tell us something. Um, and then content, we're really just starting to explore. So we have... Um, we are so meticulous about the ingredients that we use and the farmers that we partner with, but we haven't told any of those stories yet. Hmm. So we're really just now leaning into it because, um, as I said before, we've just been keeping up with demand. Mm-hmm. So we just haven't had the like the bandwidth to focus on it. But now we're getting to a place where we're excited to share these stories about, you know, 300 and. 60 something farmers that we work with and all their incredible stories and how, you know, they're doing good for the planet and how we're focusing on organic. And it's, it's like, it's so much fun to now say like, this isn't aspirational. This is, this is what we've been doing for the past three years. Do you consider yourself a direct to consumer brand? Um, so that is the, like, that is the distribution method that we chose because it is far superior to a freezer aisle. Um, but no, I consider us a, a, a platform. Why? Why is it superior? Well, why did you not want to get into the? Because I get obviously there's a lot of benefits with being direct. You're getting your data. You know your customers. Totally. But also from pure scale, I mean, you know, why not be? in every grocery store chain. Why not go there? Absolutely. But when you think about the freezer aisle, you walk down that aisle, if you like close your eyes and imagine, Um, it is literally and figuratively a very cold place. You walk down, there's fluorescent lights. We've all been told to shop the perimeter. Nobody's going to the freezer aisle. If you do go to the freezer aisle, there's like frozen peas, frozen berries, all this stuff that takes work. Then there's Hungry Man. And the reason why Hungry Man exists is because you know that if you open that freezer door, you're going to get blasted with cold air. Then you're going to have to shut it really quickly because you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm wasting energy. What's happening? People are judging me. And you know if you lock it, if you close it, it's going to fog up and then you don't get a second chance to open it because it's stuck shut. I love this experience. Totally. It's like right? you were there. Right? Um, but if you think about why Hungry Man still exists, it's because it can. There, It is the antithesis of transparency with food, but transparency is what people actually want today. So I do not believe in the freezer aisle. Um, it's just not something that I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Couldn't you make yourself, or is, again, I'm just thinking of you as like a founder. Like, yeah. do you, you just don't want to be... Because on some on some level, it's like this could give you huge. I mean, there's lots of people who still don't know about daily yep. harvest. You could get in front of Absolutely. tons of new types of customers. To your point earlier, um, but the brand sort of image and value is to you kind of could get tarnished, and you don't want to be anywhere near it. Absolutely, but it's also about the user journey and the user experience. Like if you come in to if you come onto our platform, um, and you have no idea like what is in front of you, which is the experience in the freezer aisle, how are you going to figure out what, what, you know, food you want to eat? There's Mm -hmm. no way we have over 65 SKUs and like it would be impossible. So our goal through our digital platform is to make sure that you get the right thing in your box on the first try. And then every subsequent order is also the right thing. So we can help you figure out what works for you. And if your diet changes, like we we stay away from all sorts of diets. We are just about eating more fruits and vegetables. We can change with you and we can grow with you. And that's what's so important. You can't do that in the freezer aisle. The other thing that I hate about the freezer aisle is that think about like we live in New York City, so it's a little bit different. But outside of New York City, where the majority of the country lives, um, you know, you have to really plan your day about around going to the grocery store. If you don't go home right after, whatever you bought in the frozen aisle is a goner. So, you know, why wouldn't you just think about the freezer, like the freezer as a self-replenishing pantry and just make sure that like the, the food that you've become accustomed to is just always there. Mm-hmm. It's so superior in my mind. Talk to me about that customer journey. Um, 
because you're sort of in that interesting place where unlike most other DTC brands, you don't just have one thing you're selling, yep. um, which is where I think they've excelled, right? If you only sell like two types of mattresses, totally. but this is going to be the best mattress you've ever bought right. and it, it works. Right. Um, but you're talking about, you know, people's food. We're which, building relationships. Which is completely different. You know, yep. you're going to change your different minds, different tastes, different diets, different right. life stages. How does somebody, how do most people kind of find you? that you've seen from your customers and what kind of what's sort of an ideal or typical experience for those who might not have figured it out yeah so the way that people usually find us is through word of mouth so there's either you know word of mouth through a platform like instagram or it is literally somebody texting you being like i just like game changer here <laughs> like this has just changed my life and people text it um you've been doing partnerships as we well, do a few right? yeah okay. we don't do a ton of them but okay. but we have done them um so hearing from us from a friend or or another brand or whatever it is, um, and then what happens is you usually ask that person, "What do you like?" Right? But what we've learned is that that what you what your friend likes is not necessarily what this person is going to like. So like it's helpful and it like gets that person started on a journey. But then they go to our digital platform, and it's like we really help you understand what is actually going to work for you. Um, and then, you know, when you have that first box, our goal is to get half, at least half of it right. Right. So the reason we give, we, we give like a slight discount on your first box. And the reason why is because we don't expect you to like everything. Like we think of it as a taster box, knowing that like we, you shouldn't pay for the things that you didn't like. Um, and then on that second box and that third box, that's where we really start to understand what you're, what you like and help you get to that place where you're like, all right, game changer. I get what my friend was saying weeks ago. Got it. What, in terms of sort of your company's evolution, again, you said you've moved from obviously starting with smoothies, going into a bunch of different new products. How do you think of kind of growth, both from, okay, a revenue perspective, a scale perspective, but also like what Daily Harvest is and where, what do you want it to become? Yeah, so um, that that kind of north star is is as I said before, how do we how do we turn every freezer in America into a personalized, self replenishing pantry of good, clean food um, that is quick to prepare, right? Um, and the way that we we do that is through so many different. Um, through so many different avenues. So one of those ways is by expanding our collections, right? So so you might be a, a latte person. Somebody else might be a Harvest Bowl person. Um, and we're going to form a different relationship with each one of those people. And they're going to use us totally differently. And that's, you know, that's how we grow. It increases our TAM to, mm -hmm. um, you know, to expand. But we've also shown this really cool, um, you know, effect where once we're in somebody's freezer, People just like get really excited about Daily Harvest and, and like they want more and more from us. So, um, you know, we expand both with with new customers, but also there's a ton of expansion with our existing. Do you worry about sort of keeping, you know, sort of the customer acquisition costs down? Kind of what what is the big challenge, especially just from like a, making sure that you're obviously healthy from a totally. balance sheet perspective? Yeah. So we're really disciplined. Um, you're probably not surprised to hear that after the way I've been talking. Uh, but we're, we're efficient. Yes, we're efficient. We're super disciplined. And we, we have a certain CAC target and we do not go above it. Okay. It doesn't matter to what me. What is your you CAC target? I, I can't share that. I had to ask. <laughs> um, but we do not go above it. Okay. So I'm totally okay in a world where one week we acquire fewer customers, okay. but we do not go above that CAC target. And it's given us such discipline um, in everything that we do. If we're going into a new channel, which like usually is inefficient when you start, um, we just say, okay, so how do we average it out? 
Okay. How do we make sure that we're we're launching it into like a very small audience so that it all kind of comes out in the what is what is the saying? Comes out in the soup. Comes out in the <laughs> comes out in the smoothie. Let's just say. Yeah, there you um, go. <laughs> that that's really interesting, and because I think that one of the things again we've heard so many people on the show talk about is the intense amount of pressure they're under, and some of that pressure has come because they've taken a bunch of funding. Absolutely, and it's coming from there. It's coming from just this insane kind of world of new brands and new products. Mm-hmm. Everyone's launching a new brand every day. Um, like make your market or yep. sort of make your targets no matter what. Yeah. And that's leading to some ballooning. Hack. I have There's- such issues with this. So this is what I call the cycle of torching cash. And I think that there's so much VC money out there. What's happening is anybody can raise and then they can throw money at the problem. They're like, it doesn't matter if people don't like what I'm making. I'll just throw money at the problem and I can keep acquiring customers. And it doesn't matter if my CAC rises to $250 because there's there'll always be somebody. And that is dangerous. And what that does is it it means Facebook makes a ton of money. <laughs> and Facebook is. And, and everybody else suffers. Everybody right. else suffers. So I've decided early on and my investors have known this about me since day one so I've set that expectation I'm not playing that game okay I am in the I am in the business of building a strong good business business sustainable sustainable business and um you know we've just said all right you know if if CACs are rising because other people are making stupid decisions, we're going to go elsewhere and we're going to you know we're going to go into into other channels and Mm -hmm. do things that are are different and it's okay if if one week or one month totally you because don't miss those again those targets because I think that's the fear I hear from founders that's absolutely the fear. Oh my but God. you'd be surprised what happens if you say to your team like here's where I draw the line figure out other ways to do it they rise to the occasion and they figure it out like you know just because if we miss one week we make it up the next week like with with dividends so you know just building that discipline I've found to be really important since day one and, and I've also aligned our investors around it. Amazing. Discipline. It's the name of the name yeah. of the game. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And that's all for today's episode of Making Marketing, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer is, of course, Gianna Cappadona. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Head to your iTunes store, search for a show, Making Marketing, leave us a review, hopefully five stars and a rating. I'll also read my favorite reviews here at the end of the show. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week.